Let's pray before we begin. Jesus, we come before you um, to listen to your word. We come before you, Lord, for your spirit to teach us what you want us to learn and apply. Without you, Lord, we would not understand anything. And so we ask that you'd come in our midst, that you'd speak to us, Lord, that we'd hear what you want us to hear. In your name, Jesus, amen. Now, I think I can safely say that we've all seen and experienced anger. You know, a child's temper tantrum in the middle of a store, if you've seen that. That a patient driver who keeps honking his horn. Two people shouting curses at each other. Or the silent treatment. So I won't talk to you. Or that passive-aggressive colleague who is plotting to get even at some time. Or perhaps it's a nasty text that you received on your phone. The list can go on. It's a list that actually began in a beautiful garden. When Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation and sinned, one of the consequences was the arrival of anger. The first son of Adam and Eve was named Cain, and he became the first human to succumb to uncontrolled anger. Read this in Genesis 4 and 2 to 8. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell or was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you, do not, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Can you see what's happened? As a farmer, Cain brought the first fruit of his crops to the Lord as an offering. But the Lord did not accept that offering. And the result was anger. Cain was angry with the Lord. He was so angry that his face betrayed his inner emotion. We've all seen the face of anger. We learn what the face of anger looks like. And we're told that Cain was not merely disappointed, but that he was very angry. He was irate. And notice how God responds. He says to Cain in this verse on the screen, if you don't do well, Cain, then sin is waiting for you. The implication here is that Cain's offering was from a heart and attitude that was not right before God. It wasn't the offering of fruit and grain itself. It was his heart was not right. So in his anger, he refused to listen to the Lord. And so Cain's anger opened the door to sin. Look how God describes sin. He describes sin like a person, crouching, waiting to attack, with a desire to dominate and to control, and that Cain actually needed to rule over it, to master it. Unfortunately, Cain was not able to check his anger, and this led to another first for humanity, and that was premeditated murder. The next verse says it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother 
Abel and killed him. Although Cain was very angry with God, his anger was expressed against his brother. Cain's rage grew to the point where he killed his brother. First was the anger, then there was the murder. Uncontrolled anger can be both dangerous and devastating. In fact, anger has become part of the very fabric of our human experience. None of us are strangers to this intense, blinding emotion of annoyance, displeasure, hostility. None are immune. Anger can flare up at a moment's notice. Yet it can reside in the heart for a long time, waiting to emerge when the time is right. We see it in ourselves, we see it in others, and we see it in our world. We live in an angry world. There's a lot of anger around us and in us. No culture, no language, no person is exempt. Anger is among us and within us. It's something that was a result of the fall. Now, the fruit of unresolved sinful anger can lead to broken relationships, or worse, it can lead to murder. Now, Cain's unchecked anger damaged his relationship with the Lord. His uncontrolled anger broke his relationship with his brother. And our unchained anger, as well, can lead to bitterness towards God, to shattered friendships, to destroyed marriages, broken family relations. It can lead us embittered, frustrated, and miserable. Yes, anger can be dangerous and deceitful as it escalates and drives us to make plans for revenge or punishment. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why Jesus chose this as one of the first aspects to speak about when he taught about the law and the kingdom of heaven. As we approach today's text, which was read earlier, we should keep in mind that this is part of a longer series within the teaching of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. We've already looked at the Beatitudes. We've spent some weeks looking at that. We've seen that, that Jesus describes how his disciples should look like. What are the identifying markers and signs of followers of Jesus as they witness for the kingdom of heaven? Now, after the Beatitudes, Jesus now turns his attention to explain the law, Jewish law, and the messianic kingdom of heaven. Now, Pastor Brent has already ushered us into this series, which begins the declaration that Jesus himself has come to fulfill the law. We've seen that in verse 17 in Matthew 5. We also learned that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in order for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we learn that not only is Jesus the author and communicator of God's law, but the very essence of the law is fulfilled in Christ. And as such, Christ alone wields the authority to interpret and explain what the law means. And Christ provides his disciples with the required righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. So in the rest of Matthew 5, Jesus explains a set of six commands. His explanations go well beyond the received understanding taught by the religious authorities of his day. And Jesus is demonstrating, keep this in mind from verse 25, Jesus is demonstrating how righteousness of his disciples must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if you look at this section of verses, I want you to notice a couple of things. 
Jesus presents a distinct pattern in his teaching. He repeats this pattern six times. He says, you've heard it said. When he says that, he's talking about the command of God. You've heard it said, insert command of God. Six times he says that. And then when he introduces his own interpretation and teaching, he then says, but I say to you, demonstrating authority. And then at the end of that, in each of these six samples, he explains and applies what the text should mean to the disciples. Now our focus for today is Christ's teaching about anger and reconciliation as found in verses 21 to 26. Now, although it's very snowy outside, I wrote this before today happened. So I wrote this. Now as you sit back and join the first century crowd in this beautiful, warm, Galilean hillside, imagine it, you're back in the first century, you're on a hillside, it's beautiful, the sun is shining, the Sea of Galilee is out there, and Jesus is below teaching, and you're listening to him. As we're listening to him, I want you to pay attention to something. I want you to pay attention to how Jesus moves us toward reconciliation with both God and with each other. As we move along, all I'm going to do is talk about the command try and help you understand what Jesus means with his explanation, and then look at following Christ's pathway as he leads us from anger to reconciliation. So what is this command that Jesus talks about? You shall not murder. You've heard it said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus introduces this command with, you've heard it said. Now any Jewish person sitting on the hillside listening to Jesus say this, would immediately know that this is the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, found in Exodus 20:13, A commandment that was given directly from God to Moses, and then Moses gave it to his people. That's why Jesus says it was said to those of old. It includes that whole generations of people who follow the Torah. We commonly refer to the set of laws as the Ten Commandments. So this is not something new. People have heard this before. You shall not murder. And so Jesus is reminding us something about the law, and he's doing something else. Of course, if somebody does commit murder, all would clearly agree that this person should face judgment. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And this all seems rather straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, perhaps of the Ten Commandments... This is one of the easier ones to, uh, to obey. You shall not murder. Fortunately, very few people in our society actually succumb to this act. So it sounds fairly basic. But you may ask, what constitutes murder? What does murder mean? What about self-defense or, or war or an accident? We generally consider murder as a premeditated action to end human life. Exodus 21.14 says, But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So it's not a result of an accident or self-defense. But there are many legal, moral, philosophical arguments surrounding the crime of murder. So on this fine morning, as we listen to Jesus, perhaps he will provide a definitive 
argument and explanation that lawyers, judges, scribes, the public have all sought. What is murder? But this is not what Jesus does. He does something entirely different. This is what he does. He says, but I say to you, but I, I have the authority to tell you what the law really means. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to, to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hells of fire. Now, if you're alert, you hear this verse, and if you can think back two weeks ago, you may have a question. You may be thinking, what about Matthew 5.19? Matthew 5.19 says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't it sound like like Jesus is um, relaxing the law a bit here? The law says anyone who murders another is liable to judgment. But Jesus is, is now saying anyone who's angry will be liable to judgment. So when Jesus says what I say to you, is, is he in some way modifying the command by including anger or replacing murder with anger? Well, as we move along, we're going to see that Jesus is not criticizing the command of God. Rather, he's criticizing the misunderstanding that people have around this command. As he explains the true intention of what the law really means. You see, he moves from external performance to the inner fulfillment of the command. For example, someone could say to you, you know, I've never murdered anybody, so I've, I've kept the commandment. I have no blood on my hands, I've not murdered anybody. But I know people in family relations where the family is so broken that it's as if the relatives are dead to them. They become so angry that they could say, you know, you're dead to me. You no longer exist to me. I don't talk to you. We have no relationship. It's finished. I have friends who that's what's happened in their families. They never get together. They haven't talked in decades. It's as if the other person has died. All because of anger. It says in Exodus 21.17, whoever curses or dishonors his father or mother shall be put to death. Normally curses appear when there's anger. So anger and murder go together in extreme forms. Now here's what I believe Jesus is doing. Jesus begins with the most extreme external expression of anger, which is murder. And then he walks us back to the inner life of the heart as we move beyond anger into reconciliation. Jesus, in his teaching, as I'm learning over my life, always boils right down to the most fundamental issues of your personal inner life. So, we can ask, what is anger then? And more importantly, is anger always bad? Is it always sinful? Is there not a th- such a thing as righteous anger? Well, let's start with anger. Anger is a strong feeling, emotion of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. It can become a very strong reaction of displeasure and can lead to plans for revenge or punishment or any number of expressions. Now, human anger 
the Bible usually portrays human anger as sinful. Now, there are numerous verses about the danger and the need to refrain from anger throughout Scripture. We've already met Cain and have seen what happened when his anger was out of control and how it led to wrath and revenge. In Psalm 37, 8, it says, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. In Proverbs, it says, An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. And one of my all-time favorite verses, I think you should all memorize, is also in Proverbs. For as a churning cream becomes butter, as a twisting of the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. Very vivid. If you're going to stir the, the cream, it's going to, but it's going to result. It's going to happen. So what happens when you stir cream. If you twist your nose enough, you need a Kleenex, you get a nosebleed. In the same way, if you stir up anger, it's going to produce strife. And James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. There are many other places in which we are warned about anger, precisely because it can lead us away from living in harmony with God, because anger inherently makes us self-focused and not God-centered. If you're angry, you're focusing on yourself. Something that's happened to you can be just or unjust, but the anger brings self-focus. So what about righteous anger? Did, did, did Jesus ever, was Jesus ever angry? Yes, it was. In Mark 3, 1 to 6, it says this, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everybody. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. So the text says this. He looked around, that is, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And so he tells the man to stretch out his hand and he heals that hand completely. And look how the Pharisees and the Herodians react. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus was angry, but did not sin. We see the Pharisees also were angry, but they did sin. They were plotting murder. So there's a difference between the two expressions of the anger here. Now for the sake of time and, for, and your patience, the key to understanding righteous anger is knowing the motivation. Righteous anger is based on loving God and loving your neighbor. Unrighteous anger is based on selfish desires. In Mark 3, we see the motivation that Christ's anger was because he could see that the hearts of the authorities were hardened. They cared more about the religious customs than about this more man's healing. And so Jesus healed the man, and Jesus' anger was based on love for the man. His opponent's anger was based on selfish pride. So Jesus' anger was righteous, and religious leaders' anger was unrighteous. Michael Williams is a pastor and a counselor, and he, he wrote it this way. He said, righteous anger is based on God's righteousness, which is rooted in a love of God and a love of our neighbor. 
It is not based on selfish lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride. It seeks to do no harm to others personally, but instead seeks to do good so as to convince the offending party to change their attitude and behavior. It also defers wrath to God and his ministers. Dealing with righteous anger was perfectly demonstrated by Christ, who serves as our example. And Paul echoes this in Ephesians 5, where he says, Be angry and do not sin. So you can be angry and not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So anger is not always sinful based on our motivation and how we handle our anger. So when Jesus in verse 22 of our text says, everyone who is angry with his brother will have his judgment, he's speaking of sin-producing anger, not righteous anger. He also speaks of judgment. But I say to everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What kind of judgment does he refer to? Samuel Lacks in his rabbinic commentary on the New Testament, and yes, there are rabbinic commentaries on the New Testament, he points out that under the Jewish law, anger is not an offense that can be tried by a court. How can you try anger? Anger can be morally, but not legally, wrong. So in what sense is Jesus using judgment? It's not human judgment, as with murder, but anyone who expresses sinfully motivated anger is liable to a heavenly court where God is the judge. I believe this is a concept that Jesus is using in terms of judgment. And it's echoed in the two examples that he provides in the rest of the, the text. Where he says, But I say to everyone who is angry with his brother, be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's the first example. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. You know, likely the term brother or sister here refers a little bit more than your family or spiritual family. Uh, it probably extends to your neighbor. Otherwise, it'd be pretty okay to go ballistic against a non-family member and get angry, but not against a family member. So I think it's, it's a broader um, application. Now, anger here is expressed as an insult. Now, the ESV translates the word raka, which was written this morning in Aramaic term, as simply insult. But the term raka is Aramaic. And it can be translated as empty-headed. It focuses on insulting a person's mind, how they think. And equivalent today would be to say to somebody, you're an idiot or you're stupid. If you've ever been called that, you know how much it hurts. Some people grow up being called that. It's a terrible insult to say to somebody. And Jesus says saying it results in judgment. Now, there probably were Greeks also amongst the audience. So Jesus repeats this example using a different word, something that perhaps the Greeks would be more familiar with, and that is the word more, from moros, from we get the word moron. The ESV uses the term you fool. Raka and mora are equivalent insults in different languages. While raka insults a person's mind, mora expresses contempt for a person's heart and character, in the area of character assassination, for example. Aside from you fool, more stronger expressions would be to say, you're a liar or you're a moron. They attack a person's character. Jesus finishes by warning and saying, if you say such a thing, you're liable to the judgment of hell itself. 
So Jesus is moving from the external expression of anger of murder to the more inner expression of anger as it emerges in insults. Now, uncontrolled and sinful motivated anger leads to God's judgment, which is a future judgment. But there are consequences that are closer to home, that are of the present, that I've already mentioned. Broken relationships with God, broken connections with each other, even with ourselves, can bring bitterness, frustration. Now, fortunately, God himself is slow to anger and abounds in mercy. And in his mercy, Jesus shows us how to respond to anger with three illustrations, which is the rest of this text, verses 23 to 26. But once again, Jesus does something I find unexpected. He gives us a command. He gives us an illustration of what that command really means. You shouldn't insult, even have anger expressed to your neighbor. And then he gives us the pathway of how to deal with this. Now I'm going to read verses 23 to 26. As I read these verses, I want you to listen, and I want you to see if you can identify something. I want you to identify who is the angry person, and who is the one who caused the anger. Okay? When I read these verses, listen to see who is the angry person, and who is the one who caused the anger. So Jesus goes on and he says, So, if you're offering a gift at the altar... And then remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you put it in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will be, never get out until you have paid the last penny. Can you hear what Jesus is doing here? What what he says? You may expect that Jesus would say, if you are justly angry with somebody, then you as the angry person, you go and be reconciled to the person who offended you. But this is not what he does. It's not what he emphasizes. He doesn't focus on your anger. He focuses on your offense. He turns everything around. So we have two people, one who is angry and one who offends. And Jesus says, the offender is the one who should go to the one who you made angry and be reconciled. It's the offender's responsibility to go and take responsibility and be reconciled to the one who is angry. So there's three, three persons who are offended in this passage. And the first one is God. In verse 24, or verse 23 here, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're coming to worship God. And as you're doing it, you remember, hmm, you know, my brother or my sister is angry with me. Jesus says, stop what you're doing. Leave the gift and go to your brother. Our walk with God is affected by our walk with each other. So Jesus says, go, be restored to your neighbor, and then come and be restored to God. In both cases, a pre-existing relationship is assumed, but it has been hurt or damaged by your offense. The second one to be reconciled with is your brother or sister. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Because God tells us that reconciliation is more important than sacrifice. In Hosea it says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. That's his primary examination of our hearts. It's not what we're bringing to him, but our heart and the condition of our heart. As we come before God to worship, we should be waiting to allow his spirit to search our hearts and minds to see if anything is hindering our worship, such as a sinful offense done to our neighbor or to another brother or sister. And then we have to follow the, the spirit's guidance. Now, I was reading this passage that reminded me of something that happened to me a long time ago. And I was the offender. 30 years ago, I don't know how long ago, when I was a different church, it was communion Sunday at church. We're having communion. And although I can't remember the offense itself, I know that I offended a brother before the service of worship began. Being proud and stubborn and more than likely feeling fully justified by what I said, I went on and continued with worship. Well, God wasn't happy because just before the communion service was to begin, God got a hold of me and in essence said, I don't want you to take communion today because your brother is angry with you. So don't take communion. Go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back. So I was young and so I, I in the service, got up in the service, went to my friend, sat down and said, made my apologies and he was gracious and forgave me. And I remember saying to him, thank you, now I can go have communion. But what he said to me is what struck me. He said to me, good, now I can also take communion. You see, my offense not only stood in the way of me approaching God, but it also stood in his way because he was angry. And he was struggling with his anger. As the offender, God told me to go to him, not him to come to me. Because I was the one who started this process. Now you may have asked, well, what would have happened if, if he had been so angry he said, no, I'm not going to forgive you? What would happen then? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Our response is to seek reconciliation in good faith. Once honestly offered, we cannot force reconciliation. We can't force it. We have to be prepared to grant it or to seek it. Now, it can be very hard to confess and seek forgiveness from a brother or sister that you've offended. Um, and so Jesus gives us another example, perhaps even more difficult than that. And that's being reconciled to an enemy. If it's hard enough to say you're sorry to a brother or sister, how do you deal with somebody who doesn't even know the Lord, perhaps? So in verses 25 to 26, our last verses, Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. And the judge to the guard may be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. In this case, Jesus describes an impending court case in which the offender owes money to the accuser, who is probably not your brother. In the time of Jesus, there were debtors' prisons to which people were sent when they owed a debt. When the debt was repaid, they'd be released. In this case, the offense made the accuser so angry 
that he expected every single penny to be paid before the debt would be released, the person would be released. Today's equivalent would be uh, debt collectors calling you or uh, repossession of something on which you have still owe money or wages garnished by the courts for the debt you owed. Before it reaches the point of prison, Jesus says, go and be reconciled. So again, the offender is the one who goes to the accuser, the one he's angered, to seek reconciliation if possible. So Jesus began by quoting the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, which is an extreme expression of anger. And he's ended up with reconciliation. Reconciliation with God, with our brother and sister, with our enemies. But now comes the hard part. Now is the hard part. How do we apply this? How do we respond to this? Remembering that Jesus, this is his first teaching, just after he said that your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees and the scribes in order to get into heaven. Reconciliation to God. To reconcile with God begins with faith. It begins with seeking God's forgiveness because each of us have offended him. We're the offender. There's absolutely no way we can ever pay off that debt to him. That debtor's prison that Jesus spoke of in verse 26, that's hell. That's a separation from God forever. And until our offenses are removed, we're in that prison, which we cannot do ourselves. Fortunately, God is not like us. The amazing reality is that Jesus has taken upon himself the offenses you and I have committed against him. And God is righteous and in his anger, but merciful in his forgiveness. And for this reason, Jesus paid your debt, which was a punishment of death. Yes, Jesus died for our sins and offenses against God. The incredible reality is that now this penalty has been paid. Now in this case, because he's God, we're the offender, he's the one who's angry, what does he do? He comes to us to seek reconciliation. Whereas as humans, now he requires us as offenders to seek reconciliation with others. As Christ rose victorious over death, the sin which caused God's just and righteous anger has now been removed. To be reconciled to God is to come to him in humility and sorrow over how you have offended God and by faith receive the forgiveness that Jesus alone offers. These are the first two Beatitudes. We've not left the Beatitudes behind. They're being applied as Jesus teaches. Now we've all angered God by our choices and lives. And the only solution is to seek his mercy and humbly trust in Jesus as Savior. If you've never done that, today is the day to do it. Why wait any longer? Why wait with angry God when it can be reconciled through faith, repentance, and confession? The second area of response for us is reconciliation to our brother and sister. You know, for some people, it's, it's easier to be reconciled to God than each other. Because God is, you know, I don't see him face to face, but I do, the person I offend. To reconcile with your brother or sister means two things need to happen. If you know you've offended another, go and be reconciled. Even if that other person is now angry with you. If you have been offended and that person comes to you, be prepared to forgive and be reconciled. It's easier if it's done as soon as the offense is made known. 
if it waits for years and years, it can be extremely difficult to overcome, but not impossible. Because it's only done in Christ's strength that we're able to forgive and be forgiven. And it demonstrates as we do this that we're peacemakers of Matthew 5, 9. And the showing we are God's children. And this is a way that we can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, next Sunday is a communion Sunday. So I'm going to ask each of us to sit before God and say, Lord, if I've offended anybody, please bring that person to my mind and allow me the opportunity to seek reconciliation before I take communion, before I come to worship. It doesn't mean you sit there and you go, okay, uh, gee, who have I offended? No, God will bring it to mind. You don't have to search for it. This isn't a, uh, a self-flagellation exercise. God shows us who, who we've offended. Usually we know right away. Oops, okay. I better go and deal with that. So seek reconciliation before coming to worship. Because Christ said, if you remember something, leave your gift at the altar, be reconciled, and then come and give the gift. And finally, reconciliation with your enemy. To reconcile with your enemy may mean coming to someone who is not yet a follower of Christ. They may not accept your repentance, if I can use that word, or your efforts to reconcile. So we remember, and we were guided by Romans 12, 18-21, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So if you offended somebody who is an enemy, you do what you can to do them good, to love them. Finally, let me say this. Some of us are actually angry at ourselves. That's where our anger and rage emerges. We beat up ourselves about our past. We, we beat up ourselves about our habitual sinful behavior, unmet expectations, and a host of other reasons. Moving from anger to reconciliation, how does it work in that case? I'm the offender. I'm the one who's angry. I did it to myself. Well, it requires coming to God to confess that, to have his release within you. Because only Jesus can make us whole and complete. So I want us to invite him to fill us with forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. Let's pray. Jesus, you know us so well. You've created us and you've watched us and you have seen uh, the anger of Cain and our own anger. You've seen, Lord, how we hurt one another and are hurt by each other and in this world. Jesus, thank you for teaching us that we are to trust you, to walk with you, to live like you, and to seek reconciliation wherever we can. We ask, Lord, that you would give us that strength and that ability, that humility, to step out in faith and to follow your teaching and your pathway. Amen.